Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 29th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to continue our commentary on the Song of Songs. This is part two, and it is titled, The Metaphor. In our opening commentary on the Song of Songs, titled, The Allegory, we made the assertion that the poem itself is an allegory which represents the love which Yahweh God has for the children of Israel as a nation, his bride, and which the bride is portrayed as having for her husband, which is Yahweh her God. We shall see further evidence of that allegory as the poem commences. However, in spite of that underlying meaning, the work is also a love poem between an actual husband and wife, Solomon and his bride, and its metaphors represent their love and desire for one another, as well as describing their acts of lovemaking. So here we shall assert, that the metaphors employed in the description of those acts shall also give us greater insight into the meanings of similar metaphors and allegories which are found in other portions of the biblical literature. Up to this point, the dialogue between the husband and the bride grows in intensity as it progresses from its beginning in verse 7 of chapter 1. After the husband begins to extol the beauty of the bride, she in turn describes him as sitting at his table, as the King James Version has it, as her own bodily scent fills the air, and she confesses that his odor is appealing to her. Then she exclaims that he shall lie all night betwixt or between my breasts. Whereupon we should realize that the table is a metaphor and not a literal table. As she compares her lover to something which can burn intensely, which is camphir or asphalt, in the vineyards, a place where one may not expect to find camphir. So then she once again declares her lover's appeal and begins to speak of her bed, or their bed, and its surroundings, before she describes herself with flowery metaphors. The meaning of the allegory, where camphir is mentioned, draws a picture of the bride herself as a vineyard, and her husband is burning within her as they engage in their lovemaking. The veracity of that interpretation shall become even clearer as the song progresses through to the end of chapter 4 and we see the bride described as a garden, the husband being invited to eat of its fruits. Then in the second verse of song, chapter 2, which we have already discussed, the husband speaks and describes the bride with similes and metaphors of trees and fruit. And, as we have just explained, we shall see more of those metaphors 
as the song progresses. Following that, in verse 4 of chapter 2, the bride declares that her husband brought her to a banqueting house, as it is in the King James Version. And that must also be a metaphor, since it is there that she becomes exhausted from lovemaking. She describes herself lying in close embrace with her lover, and he falls asleep, whereupon she goes to address the chorus, admonishing them not to awaken him. This is where we had left off with the song in our first presentation, and before we continue, there is another important aspect of that scene which we should further discuss. In verse 3 of song chapter 2, the bride declares that as the apple tree among the trees of wood, so is my beloved among the sons, meaning these sons of men. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. The bride is depicted as having spoken those words in the context of a love poem, which is replete with erotic imagery. Here we shall assert that this language evokes the words of Genesis chapter 3, because in the world in which these works were written, sexual acts were naturally described with such allegories as poetic euphemisms. So in the King James Version, in Genesis chapter 3, we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yeah, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall surely not die. For God, knows, for God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. In Genesis, the woman ate of the tree, as did her husband after her. And they both found death as a result of their having eaten, because they were warned not to eat of that particular tree, which is also ostensibly an allegory for certain people. So we would assert that just as this Song of Songs uses trees and the eating of fruit to represent people and sexual activities. So did Moses when he wrote those words in Genesis chapter 3. But as we have also explained on a few occasions in our commentaries on Scripture, these metaphors and poetic euphemisms for sexual relations are even older than Abraham himself as they are also found in the Epic of Gilgamesh 
an ancient Akkadian poem which was based on similar Sumerian legends that date to as early as the late 3rd millennium B.C., approaching the very time of Abraham. There is archaeological evidence that Gilgamesh, one of the so-called giants, was a famous Sumerian king who lived and ruled around the middle of the 3rd millennium B.C., which would be about 2500 B.C. The following few paragraphs are adopted from our 2007 essay, where we first wrote about these parallels with Gilgamesh, titled Shemitic Idioms and Genesis Chapter 3. And here we are going to cite ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, published by Princeton University Press in 1969. James Pritchard being the editor. We will simply refer to that as A-N-E-T. A-N-E-T. The title character, Gilgamesh, was said to have been formed by the gods and to be two-thirds a god and one-third human. We'll find that in A-N-E-T on page 73. It is not a coincidence that this evokes the account found in Genesis chapter 6, as we also find similar stories in many Greek legends, as well as in other ancient examples of Mesopotamian literature. The character, Gilgamesh, is mentioned several times in the Book of Giants, a part of the Enoch literature, which was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Namely, the scrolls designated as 4Q530 and 4Q531. So the legend was known to the ancient Hebrews. In the Akkadian epic, Akkadian is the language of the ancient Assyrians. In the Akkadian epic, Gilgamesh is a mighty man endowed with superhuman size. Again, citing ANET page 73 who ruled as a king over the Mesotopian city Uruk, which is the Erech mentioned in the Bible at Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. Gilgamesh is portrayed as a greedy, rapacious character and a harsh ruler who cannot be challenged, having neither rival nor equal. Therefore, the people of the land appeal to the god Anu, for assistance. With this, the goddess Aruru was beckoned to create another mighty giant, and she complied, creating Enkidu to be a rival to Gilgamesh. Enkidu, created in the wilderness of the steppe, out of the way of civilization and any contact with humans, became a great friend and protector of wildlife. Soon, Enkidu put animal hunters and trappers in fear, having protected the animals from them and having cut them off from their means of living. Seeking relief, a hunter went to Uruk and appealed to Gilgamesh for assistance against the mighty savage Enkidu. But rather than leave the city to confront Enkidu, Gilgamesh advises the hunter to subdue the savage by quite another method. This we read from Tablet 1, Part 3, 
Lines 40 to 45 of the epic. Anet, A-N-E-T, page 75. Go, my hunter, take with thee a harlot lass. When he waters the beasts at the watering place, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. As soon as he sees her, he will draw near to her. Reject him, will his beasts that grew up on his step. The step being a grasslands. The hunter does as Gilgamesh instructs him to do, and by carrying out the plot, he is quite successful. From part 4, lines 16 through 39 of the same tablet, found in Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 75, the lass freed her breasts, bared her bosom, and he possessed her ripeness. She was not bashful as she welcomed his ardor. She laid aside her cloth, and rest, he rested upon her. She treated him, the savage, to a woman's task, as his love was drawn unto her. For six days and seven nights, and Kidu comes forth, mating with the lass. Twice here, we see the harlot's nakedness, described as her ripeness, as a piece of fruit, associated with an act of lovemaking. Some other translations of this epic translate the word for ripeness as sex, thereby losing the idiom. While that same account in Gilgamesh, soon after, had used other idioms, which are also found in Genesis chapter 3, as the editors themselves had noted, and which are related to sexual awakening, saying of Enkido, that now he had wisdom, broader understanding, and that thou art wise, and Kidu art become like a god. They are beyond the scope of our discussion here concerning the song. What is important is to realize that these descriptions in Gilgamesh and a similar and more comprehensive language here in the song, as well as the similar language in Genesis chapter 3, are all metaphors with fruit and trees being used as euphemisms for sexual relations. So to repeat these three examples together, first from Gilgamesh, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. As soon as he sees her, he will draw near to her. The lass freed her breasts, bared her bosom, and he possessed her ripeness. She was not bashful as she welcomed his otter. She laid aside her cloth and he rested upon her. She treated him, the savage, to a woman's task as his love was drawn unto her. Now from Genesis chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Finally, from the song from chapter 2 
As the apple tree among the trees of wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner was over me, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, or raisin cakes. Comfort me with apples, for I am sick, or weak, of, or from, love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand does embrace me. Again, we shall assert that all of these metaphors are describing sexual relations. There are others to come, which shall add to the evidence supporting our assertion. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and she took it a fruit thereof and did eat. And the bride of the song saw her lover as the apple among the trees of the wood, and then she sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to her taste. There are other such allegories in the writings of Solomon, although they are more concise. For example, after speaking of a harlot, and the sort of man who would employ her. We read in Proverbs chapter 9 that stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Then in Proverbs chapter 30 we read, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. But here in the song, the allegories are much more developed and the parallels with Genesis chapter 3 are unmistakable and plausibly undeniable. So continuing with the song from where we had left off, in chapter 2, at the end of our last presentation, the bride, who in verse 7 had addressed the chorus by admonishing them not to awaken her sleeping lover, now seems to be making an announcement to them, where it is evident that this scene is from a later time. We're not all, always informed of the change, changes of scenes in the song. So we start with chapter 2, verse 8, and the bride is speaking. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. The text of verse 8 is the passage which Melito the philosopher, also known as Melito of Sardis, a Christian writer who flourished in the second half of the second century, had evidently cited in reference to the ascension of Christ, which we read about in Acts chapter 1. While I think it's strange that this particular verse was associated with the ascension of Christ, Melito was apparently one of the most esteemed of the early Christian writers. However, although he was cited frequently by later so-called church fathers, most of his works have been lost which may also be an indication of how useful 
or convenient they may have been to the later Roman Catholic Church. Continuing with the song, while the bride seems to be addressing the chorus, this is also the beginning of a monologue which endures through the end of song chapter 3. In this monologue, the bride shares her fantasies of her husband and expresses her longing for him. So, from verse 9, My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. The imagery in the first part of verse 9 continues the thought which was begun in verse 8, where the husband is pictured leaping and bounding through the hillside as a stag. But here it is apparent that her lover is not actually present with her. So as she continues, this seems to represent a mere fantasy. So we read her words in verse 10. My beloved spoke and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. The Hebrew word rendered here as come away would have been better translated as come along or merely come, which is the literal meaning of Yalak, Strong's number 3212. The word for turtle is actually turtle dove. The Hebrew word tower, a bird which has long been associated with romance. In Greek mythology, the trugon, or dove, was used to symbolize Aphrodite, their pagan goddess of love. Likewise, the dove has represented romance throughout the history of English literature. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary acknowledges that the word turtle, a word which was derived from French, was used to describe the turtle dove in Middle English, although it was also used to describe the aquatic animal that we know as a turtle, from at least as early as the 12th century. Here the blossoming of spring is depicted as an opportune time for lovemaking. So the bride is extending an invitation to her husband, or rather, the bride is imagining that her husband is extending an invitation to her, although he is apparently not yet present. Therefore, she continues to express her longing, and now we see another word for dove, which is Yonah, or Jonah, as we saw at the end of chapter 1. Both Hebrew terms for dove and turtle dove were also used in that chapter. And the bride says in verse 14, O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, 
Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Until the day breaks, and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Where it says, take us the foxes. The meaning is to catch the foxes. As the term is translated here in both the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible and the New American Standard Bible. Where the bride then declares that our vines have tender grapes and asserts that my beloved is mine. She seems to be insisting that her husband enjoy her fruits while they are ripe before they can be snatched up by others, the foxes. Then where she says of him that he feedeth among the lilies, she is further encouraging him to come to her in a playfully seductive manner. With this, we shall commence with Song of Songs chapter 3, and the bride continues to long for her lover as she reflects on her fantasies. By night, on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now the scene which follows would be impossible for a noblewoman, especially for a king's wife, in the ancient world, as she and the other women of his household would be closely guarded. The women's quarters of great houses were typically the innermost chambers of the house, separated from most of the rest of the house, and all of the house surrounding them would be guarded. So this lends substance to the evidence that the allegory of the song is a description of the loving relationship between Yahweh and the children of Israel as his collected bride. So the bride says from verse 2, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loves? It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go, until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. Now, from a modern perspective, at least, the passage exhibits deeper strains of feminism. Once one realizes that the children of Israel are the bride of Yahweh their God, all of their rebellion against God as their father and as husband of their nation, and their wanderings in the worship of other gods can be seen in feminism. The bride goes out on her own, seeking to find and control the husband. And therefore, when she finds him, she brings him into her own mother's house, rather than persuading him to bring her to his house. 
evidently she embarks on this path because she felt that she was alone. It may also be observed that Adam must have also left Eve alone as the serpent had access to speak with her by herself in order to seduce her. As for verse 4, where it says, I held him and would not let him go. In both the Greek of the Septuagint and the Latin of the Vulgate, the word for let him go is in a future tense. So it may better be read, I held him and shall not let him go, where it is evident that the bride, who is only having a fantasy, is expressing a wish, but that this is not a statement in fact, as we shall soon see that the husband was not yet present. He hasn't been present. She had just portrayed him as a stag in the forest who is looking over the wall and through the trellises of their home. So she was imagining him to be around, but he wasn't yet there. And he's still not there. So even here, she only expresses a fantasy. So now, as the bride continues in her fantasy, once again she is depicted as addressing the chorus with the, with, I should say, a very similar admonition which she had uttered at chapter 2, verse 7. I had written with the same admonition. However, it's not quite the same upon examination. It's only the same in the King James Version. So, in verse 5 of the King James Version, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. The final phrase is problematical. The form of the Hebrew verb is feminine, and for that reason, the New American Standard Bible has it to read, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases, which makes no sense because it's the bride speaking these words. So that does not fit the context. Rather, this being a fantasy, we would lean towards the reading given in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, where love itself is the subject of the verb, and it says, Do not stir or awaken love until it is ready. Here it is also noted in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible that the scroll known as 4Q Canticles B reflects a shorter text that eliminates the description of King Solomon's dramatic arrival. Then it attests that the longer text, which is what we have here, is found, which is found in the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, also appears in 4Q Canticles B or A, I'm sorry, and 4Q Canticles C. So it's 4Q Canticles B that does not have these following couple of verses. So now the chorus is depicted as answering the bride. And the answer also anticipates the fulfillment of the longing desire of the bride. So the chorus says, and we're in chapter 3, verse 6, 
Who is this that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the powders of the merchant? The chorus, in a question, announces the coming of the husband. Myrrh and frankincense were valuable ointments, but they were not native to Palestine and had to be purchased from other countries, most notably from Arabia. Later, they were among the gifts of the Magi to the infant Christ child, so perhaps they were grown in the East also, in a place accessible to the Parthians. Or it is also probable that the Parthians had also established trade with the Arab tribes, who were at that time not nearly as mixed with other races as the modern Arabs. Although this is a digression, it is during the rule of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10 that the lands to the east are first identified as Arabia in scripture. Before that time, they were identified independently by the names of the ancient tribes or kingdoms which occupied the territory, such as Midian or Havilah, for examples. Now, before the husband arrives, the bride continues to address the chorus by speaking of him in admiration. Behold, his bed, which is Solomon's, threescore valiant men are about it. Of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. And in this passage, the bride's own words show that the scene in the earlier verses in this chapter, where she said that she went out wandering the markets at night in search of her lover, is indeed implausible, and therefore we should not take them literally. It should also be understood that here, where she describes 60 valiant warriors around Solomon's bed, she does not mean that they are in his bedroom standing around the bed itself, but rather that they are stationed as guards around Solomon wherever he sleeps. Here, in this context... It is not a reference to his bed in his home, but rather to the coach in which he is traveling. Therefore, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible translates the clause to say, Look, it is Solomon's traveling couch, surrounded by sixty of Israel's most mighty men. That word for traveling couch is the Hebrew word aperion Strong's number 668 which is a chariot but which has also been interpreted as a sedan or a palanquin which is typically a sort of covered chariot for a passenger the bride continues addressing the chorus with her description of the approaching husband. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, 
and the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. And we would have translated that word chariot probably as palanquin and have people look it up as it is in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible and as I had to look it up. Now the bride addresses the chorus once more. In verse 11, Go forth, ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals, and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Of course, Solomon's mother did not crown him as king, but in ancient times people were crowned or wreathed for various purposes. Here perhaps some ancient custom is revealed where a mother would crown a son at his wedding celebration. So the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible renders the verse to read, in part, Gaze on King Solomon, wearing the crown with which his mother crowned him on his wedding day, on the day of his heart's happiness. Perhaps the bride was expressing a wish that Solomon did indeed have her in his heart and on his mind, for which reason he is described as wearing that crown as he approached. Now as we commence with Song of Songs chapter 4, Solomon himself is the speaker. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks, Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. The word for locks is tsama, and it means veil. It shouldn't be locks. That's happened several times in the Song of Songs here. It is probably describing a literal veil and not the hair as a veil, since hair is mentioned immediately after where it is described as a flock of goats. That reference seems to be a reference to the abundance and texture of her hair, and not to any particular color. So the husband continues, Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof everyone bare twins and none is barren among them. I actually wanted to look at Melissa's teeth, and she thought I was nuts when I was trying to figure out what this passage could possibly mean yesterday as I was writing this portion of, of this presentation. The compliment reflects upon the whiteness of her teeth. So where we see similes comparing things to wool elsewhere in Scripture, we should interpret wool as being a symbol for whiteness. This is also apparent in a comparison of the phrases white as snow and to be as wool in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 and also in Ezekiel 27 18, Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 and Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 where there is a reference to Christ himself having hair as white as wool. In this passage, the reference to twins 
seems to be a reflection of the uniformity of her teeth, as each tooth has an identical counterpart on the opposite side of the jaw. And I should give Melissa credit for figuring that out. None are barren, or as the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible has it, not one among them has lost its young, so therefore none of her teeth are missing. And that interpretation to me makes perfect sense, although it's odd that he described teeth as bearing twins. So the husband continues, and he says, Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. Again, the word translated as locks is actually a veil. Pomegranate is a reddish-colored fruit, which in ancient times was commonly found throughout the Mediterranean basin. Describing the temples of the bride, it is a reference to the ruddiness of her skin. However, rather than temples, the Septuagint Greek and the Latin Vulgate each have a word for cheeks, where such ruddiness is typically more apparent. Later, in Song chapter 7, the husband describes the belly of his bride to be like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. And both of those metaphors can also describe the whiteness of something. At this point, there is a note in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible that the scroll designated 4Q Canticles B is wanting verses 4 through 7 of this chapter. While it offers two possible reasons, it informs us, which I won't go into here, it informs us that the text is found in 4Q Canticles A, as well as in both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. The husband says, Thy neck is like the Tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. And while a while from a modern point of view, this comparison may be more fitting for a man than a woman, it is still the husband who is describing the bride and the majesty of her neck in glorious terms. So continuing with verse 5, the husband says, Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. The Dead Sea Scrolls Bible has the clause to read, Your twin breasts are like two fawns, like the twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies, which also expresses youthfulness. Perhaps the vivacity of the breasts of the bride is being described, rather than merely their appearance. We would hope they didn't actually look like gazelles. Now the husband continues, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And in this concept, in this context, 
These acts are clearly also euphemisms for lovemaking. As the husband seems to be seducing himself in his act of describing his bride. Now the husband attests to how pleased he is with his bride. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. So in the eyes of the husband, the bride is perfect. The same is true of Israel in the eyes of Yahweh. In spite of her sins, as Yahweh intends to perfect her. So we read in Isaiah chapter 42, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as Yahweh's servant? As it is noted in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, the Dead Sea Scroll designated 4Q Canticles A, is wanting all of the text after this point through song chapter 6 verse 10 although all or perhaps at least most of the pericope is attested in 4Q Canticles B evidently a large enough portion of the other two copies of the song found in the Dead Sea Scrolls did not survive so that a determination could be made from them in regard to this text. In the introduction to that volume, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, it was proposed that the pericope may have been missing on account of its erotic nature. The same is true of verses 4 through 7. That was one of the proposed reasons they gave as to why those verses were missing from 4Q Canticles B. But it's unlikely if 4Q Canticles B has this portion, which is much more erotic. Those are digressions that are not in my notes. So the husband continues to speak in verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Now, leopards might seem out of place here, but we will see that that is not so. They are not out of place here. While Amana is not mentioned elsewhere in scripture, it is a mountain in the anti-Lebanon mountains which are a range that runs for 93 miles, situated further east, but parallel to the Lebanon mountains. So there is a great valley between them. The Lebanon mountains are about 110 miles in length. They're a little longer and a little wider than the anti-Lebanon mountains. Shanir and Hermon are also in the anti-Lebanon mountain range. The distinction in the names distinguishing the two ranges, dates to the Hellenistic period. Anti-Lebanus was the name that the Greeks had used to describe the anti-Lebanon mountains, as opposed to the Lebanon mountains or the Lebanus. They sit opposite or against the Lebanon mountains. In the Hebrew Bible, it is always simply Lebanon. 
there is no distinction made between the two distinct ranges. They are all Lebanon. That leopards had at one time ranged in Palestine is evident in the archaeology of Catalhoyuk, a site in south-central Anatolia, not far from what was once Iconium in Lycaonia, where ancient leopard motifs had been found painted on the walls of buildings that were buried underground. One notable book on discoveries at the site was titled The Leopard's Tale by Ian Hodder, H-O-D-D-E-R, an archaeologist who led excavations of the site. Although I am skeptical of at least some of his conclusions, which are not particularly related to hard archaeological data, the book is quite revealing in what had been discovered or dug, actually dug out of the ground at Catalhoyuk. Now the husband states in verse 9, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. And here Solomon considers his bride to be both his sister and his spouse, although she was evidently an Egyptian and not even an Israelitess. As we have discussed in relation to certain passages in chapter 1 of the song and also the circumstances of Solomon's life where he was said to have taken an Egyptian princess as his wife as soon as he was made king. The bride is described in that manner several times here and in chapter 5 as both his sister and his spouse. This may help to understand the circumstances where in the book of Genesis Abraham had attested that Sarah his wife was his sister something which caused confusion with Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12 and later with Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. Later, much later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus had compared himself to other apostles, and he asked, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, in other words, James, the elder James, and Jude, the apostle, and Peter, were all married. And some of the other apostles were married. So Paul is asking, couldn't he do that same thing if he so chose? Although he also explained why he chose not to. In Paul's time, a wife was expected to be a woman of one's own race, and therefore a sister in that sense, as well as a wife. And so it was in the time of Abraham and of Solomon. So now the husband says, How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse? How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices? Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. 
where the husband describes the smell of his bride's garments, as well as the taste of her mouth, we can see that the intimacy of the situation is escalating. The love, compared to wine, is the love of physical intimacy. In verse 12, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. So the sister is being described as a garden. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed, because it's enclosed, it's all his. Thy plants are an orchid of pomegranates, with pleasant fruits, camphir with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. As we had explained with the word camphir, appears in Song chapter 1. The Hebrew word, kofer, Strong's number 3724, may describe asphalt, of which the source was apparently some volcanic activity below the Dead Sea. But it may also refer to henna, a word which in English describes both a tree and the reddish dye which is produced from that tree. In this context, we would translate the word as henna rather than as camphir, as it is also translated in this same passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. Note that the bride is the garden, or the garden is the bride. So the garden and its plants are allegories describing those features of the bride which are sexually attractive to the husband. Now the sexual nature of the metaphor shall become even more apparent as he exclaims in verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, and come thou south, addressing the south wind. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. The husband is intent on enjoying all that the bride has to offer, and now she consents, and in return she answers with an exclamation of her own, saying at the end of the verse, Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. The bride herself being the garden. It is from her that the husband would eat. It is her sexual fruits in which she beckons him to partake as he has already expressed the fact that he is more than willing to do. In their last scene of lovemaking, here in the song, the bride had said in reference to the husband in chapter 2, as the apple tree among the trees of wood, so is my beloved among the sons, the sons of men, or the young men. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In Genesis chapter 3, where Eve is deceived by the serpent, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So here we see 
A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. And the spouse declares, Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Here, in a simple love poem, written just a few centuries after the time of Moses, Solomon has resolved for us the meanings of these metaphors, these biblical metaphors, that we may better understand them all. Now here, in a legitimate marriage, and without shame, the bride offers her fruit to her husband, then in the opening verse of chapter 5, the husband professes that he did eat, and that he ate and he drank to his full satisfaction. This concludes our commentary on the Song of Songs of Solomon through chapter 4. And, Yahweh willing, we will return soon to commence with chapter 5. As a digression, and this is something which will not be in my notes, or perhaps I might change my mind and leave it in there, I do not know why Compare and Swift had never understood this aspect of the song, and not even Clifton realized it. I myself did not realize it until I read the song once again after Clifton's passing when I actually read all of the literature of Solomon planning on this series of commentaries. Even in 2016, when I did the presentation titled The Importance of the Song of Solomon to Biblical Anthropology, I was only picking and choosing passages or using passages which Clifton had already discussed in his paper on that subject, of which most of that presentation was a review. However, now I am confident enough to state that these last two presentations which I have offered on the song should stand as an indictment of all of our detractors, of all the supposed identity Christians who continue to deny our two-seed-line interpretation of Genesis chapter 3, our assertions regarding the meanings of the idioms in Genesis chapter 3, are fully vindicated by Solomon, whom our scriptures inform us was the wisest of men, and he certainly was the wisest, once you truly understand his literature. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.